Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Did you say happy birthday? If it's your birthday, happy birthday. <laughs> but that was a sneaky way to get around to it. That's all I'm going to say. Um, fresh back from Bailey and Ryan's wedding last night and uh, Friday evening. And then South Carolina earlier in the week and then Toronto last weekend. So it has been a busy but bountiful week. And, uh, and that was a reminder just this morning as we were singing, How Great Is Our God. The things that he's doing in so many places, and we're going to look at just kind of a microcosm of that this morning as we see the, the deep involvement that he had in the lives of, of Naomi and Ruth, and now Ruth and Boaz has come into the picture, and uh, I, I'm hoping by God's grace to communicate to you how, how beautiful it all truly is, and to help you to remember that there is a bigger plan in place for Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, in the same sense that there's a bigger plan in place for your life. I don't know what your week looked like this last week. I don't know how tense or driven it, it might have forced you to be, but I hope that you understand that there is a larger plan, a meta-narrative, a story that is being told from age to age. And uh, he hasn't changed. He hasn't veered off course. He hasn't come to the place. God has not come to the place where he's not sure he can carry on with this plan that he has. So uh, if he can do that with the universe, then he can certainly do that with your life. And I hope that you're going to come away this morning full of hope and perhaps with a new determination to be even more involved in what God is doing, uh, not just around the world, but here in our community and in your home as well. This morning we're going to be continuing our study our seven-week study on the story of Ruth in a series entitled A Story for the Ages. This is part four and entitled Let's Do Lunch. And we'll be unpacking Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. Last week, Brian walked us through the first 13 verses of chapter 2 of Ruth. And right from the get-go, we met a man named Boaz. And we discovered that he was a man of standing. And as Brian pointed out last week, uh, Boaz would become the symbol of the powerful and personal providence of God on display as God used Boaz as the means of meeting the needs that God himself had created in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. And providence may seem like a highfalutin theological term, but in reality, God's providence is nothing more or less than the personal expression of God's sovereignty at work whether it's in the life of, the of an individual or in the lives of humanity as a whole. And if you're more familiar with the term God's sovereignty, then as Brian said, we can say that God's sovereignty and God's providence go hand in hand. Think about it this way. Have you ever heard God say that there's this thing that he plans to do, but before he can get it done, he needs to secure a loan from China? Has, has, God, has God ever revealed that to you? That as, you know, as soon as I get the money for this thing, I'm going to make this thing happen? God always has a plan, and God is always at work. In fact, one day Jesus was forced to defend himself to the Sanhedrin, to the leaders of the Jews, for some very appropriate work he had done on the Sabbath. And this is what John chapter 5 says about what happened that day. In his own defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. 
Jesus knew that his father was working. Jesus was committed to continuing to work on behalf of his father. And God never has to wait to secure a loan so that he can push forward with his plans. And as Brian pointed out last week, when God tells us to do something, provision for what he tells us to do is never an afterthought. We never have to go and talk to God and say, oh, by the way, God, I'm going to need some scratch if I'm going to do what you've asked me to do and have God go, oh, shoot, I, you know, I just, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. In other words, his sovereignty works seamlessly with his plan, and his plan works seamlessly with his providence, and his providence works seamlessly with his provision. And it helps me to think in these terms. God's sovereignty, his plan, his providence, and his provision are not put together chronologically. They're not. In other words, those things are not sequential. They are concurrent. God doesn't come up with a plan and then start trying to figure out how he's going to provide what is needed to complete that plan. Whether it's in your life, your personal life, the lives of your family, the life of our church, or the life of the universe itself, God is always ahead of the game. For us, those things, plan and provision, always come one step at a time, step by step. And we wait for one after the other is in place because we're bound by time. But Jesus, Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who not only lives outside of time, but as Brian reminded us last week, he is sovereign over time itself. He holds time in his hands in the same way that he holds us in his hands. We are mingled, we are mingled with time, bound by time. But Jesus is the Lord of both time and us. Don't ever forget that. So as Brian pointed out last week, God doesn't come up with a plan and then, to try, and then try to come up with a way of paying for that plan. Instead, his plan and his provision have already been in place since before he created the world. And how do I know that? Know that? Revelation 13.8 speaks of Jesus as being the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. It was already a done deed in God's mind. The provision for your salvation, for your redemption, was already in place. We celebrated it looking to the past. For God, nothing is past, present, or future. It's all eternally right now. And Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God the Father has already paid in full for your redemption, and having already paid that price, God will not hesitate to take on hell itself on your behalf if that becomes necessary. And that's all because, like we just said, His plan and His provision have been in place since before He created the world. His plan for your life, His provision for your life have been in place since before he created the world. And he's not about to start cutting corners now when it comes to you and your redemption. And with those thoughts in place, Brian went on to show us how all of that was true in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Because, well, that's what we're talking about. And the subtle phrase that the author of the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, keeps repeating is, it happened. I hope you've, you've noticed that. It happens at least three times in, in that second chapter, the early part of that second chapter. But it happened. The author speaks of the events of the story as though they were coincidences, but clearly nothing that happens in the story of Ruth is a coincidence. And that's why the author keeps saying that it just so happened 
His subtlety in saying that is in reality him shouting the idea that God was there and continued to show up and show off at every moment in the story of Ruth. Brian pointed out to us that he doesn't believe in coincidences. Were you a little miffed at him when he said that? I mean, it's kind of fun to think of coincidence, but he, he said he doesn't believe in coincidence, coincidences, but even as he said it, he gave us the liberty to say we might, we might think that saying there's no such thing as a coincidence might be a bit over the top. I'm glad he gave me that freedom. I agree with him, but, you know, I, I like it if you can disagree without any way. Listen, even if we do believe in coincidences, there's simply too many coincidences in the story of Ruth for us to continue to think that the whole thing was just a happenstance. In fact, if there are coincidences in the story of Ruth, I think we'd all have to agree that there are so many coincidences that even the firmest believer in luck would have to say, well, since all of the coincidences can't be coincidences, then we all have to admit that none of the coincidences are coincidences. And if that sounded like double talk, that's because it was. That means nothing that happens to Naomi or Ruth or Boaz in this story is the result of good luck or com- karma, if, if you prefer that term. I mean, think about what we heard last week. Ruth and Naomi were in a mess, and Ruth realized that she needed to find favor from some kind person who would be willing to look out for their welfare at a time when there was no welfare program that could take care of them. So Ruth happened to go to a field to glean, and that field happened to be the field of Boaz, and Boaz happened to show up at that same field that same morning. And once again, as Brian pointed out last week, Boaz just happened to be a man of wealth and influence who happened to be someone who could do something about this pitiful situation in which Ruth and Naomi find themselves. And as it just so happened, the first thing that Boaz noticed that morning was this beautiful, hardworking, compassionate, and loving woman working right there in his field. And when Boaz asked who Ruth was, he found out that she happened to be from the clan of Elimelech, and that happened to mean that Boaz and Ruth were already deeply connected to one another, because Boaz was from the clan of Elimelech as well. And since Ruth had married into the clan of Elimelech, that happened to mean that Boaz already had personal responsibility to keep her safe. When it's all said and done, Ruth happened to find the favor that day that she was looking for when she left the house that morning. And i got to say that if all this stuff is just dumb luck at work, then Ruth shouldn't have decided to go out to the field to glean that morning. If this is dumb luck at work, then Ruth should have decided to play the lottery that morning. I mean, she would have been in much better shape by the end of that day. Because this is starting to sound like a Hallmark movie run amok. That's the way it sounds to me. Uh, Faith and I often watch a Hallmark movie together. Uh, But let me explain what I mean by watching it together. I'll be packing to leave on a trip, as as something that I do fairly often. And Faith often asks if she can help me. And I often say no, because I need to know where things are. And then while I pack, Faith will settle in to watch a Hallmark movie, since she can't help me pack. And at some point in my packing, (laughs) at any point in my packing, really, I'll pop my head in the living room and watch roughly five minutes of the movie. And after those five minutes, I can tell you who the pretty lady in the movie is going to marry and who she ain't going to marry. 
And I can tell you why she won't ever be able to forgive the guy she's going to marry for what he did until he proposes to her at the airport or some other transportation depot where he has gone to stop her from leaving. And I can tell you what theme they're going to have for their wedding and what color the napkins will be on the table. And all that. I can also tell that there will come a moment in the Hallmark movie, movie when we will be certain that none of this is going to work out for these two people who so clearly love one another. And that will have something to do with either the guy or the girl going back to their former life, clearly leaving behind the one that they love, but then, dun, 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 everything is going to work out. Most likely in the last five minutes of the movie, which is another coincidence, because everything will work out in the last five minutes of the movie, and it only takes five minutes of watching anywhere in the movie to figure out how the last five minutes are going to go down. And I'm not, I'm not making fun of, oh, yes, I am, making fun of Hallmark movies. I'm just trying to say that at this point, we may be seeing a connection between a Hallmark movie with all of its make-believe and the real-life story of Ruth and Boaz that's unfolding before our eyes. I'm saying all that to point out that by the beginning of chapter 2, the chapter that Brian walked us through last week, you've probably already figured out what's about to happen with Ruth and Boaz. So logically, whether you believe in luck or not, you have to admit that luck does not play a role in the story of Ruth any more than it plays a role in a Hallmark story. A Hallmark story is engineered by the writers. And doggone it, the story of Ruth is being engineered by the writer as well. Everything that happens in the story of Ruth is the direct result of the powerful and personal providence of God on display. And with that review in place, it's time to move on and unpack the truth from this passage this morning. And you know that we always begin that process by reading the passage aloud together. So if you would, please stand with me as we read Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to an ephah. She carried it back into town. Hold on just a second. I've lost my place. She okay. Yes, continue playing the document. Anyway, she carried it back into town, and her mother-in-law saw, saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today. Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. 
Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. Thank you. As you take your seats, whisper a prayer and ask God himself to unpack for you what he has packed into this passage for this morning. For the story from God's word this morning, I'm going to do something that you might think unusual, at least until we get to Genesis next year, but I'm going to tell you the story that you just read, because as Brian mentioned last week, the truth is packed into the story. So we already read the story, and now I'll tell you the story, and then we'll unpack the truth from the story, and then we'll go home. Deal? All right. And so by way of background, I want to remind you that Ruth told her mother-in-law, Naomi, that she was planning to go to the barley fields, and she was hoping that she would find favor in the eyes of some property owner who would allow her to pick up the leftover grain after the harvesters had finished harvesting his field. Now, the way harvest was done back then is that a long line of men wielding, wielding, wait a minute. <laughs> that, the, the way harvest was done back then, that was a, a long line of men wielding scythes. Let me see if I can find this for you. There you go. The way harvest was done back then is there was a long line of men that were wielding scythes and they would work the field cutting down the barley. Now there's only one man in that picture that has a scythe in his hand so you'll just have to picture a long line. I couldn't find anything like that. You can see two women, one on either side of the one man who are picking up and gathering the bundles, the sheaves of barley as the men mow the barley down. Once the bundles were organized there on the ground, the women would then tie the sheaves together and stack them in a pile until there were piles of sheaves all over the barley field. And the harvesters, men and women, would then move on to another part of the field. And that's when the gleaners would begin their work of gleaning, picking up the leftover grain, the individual stalks of grain that had been left behind by the harvesters. But the work that the, the gleaners did was for themselves and not for the one who owned the field. The, the, the gleaners did not turn this into the one who owned the field. That's what Ruth set out to do that morning. She knew she wouldn't be hired and she knew that she wouldn't work with the women who were harvesting. But she also knew that God's law provided for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner to come behind the harvesters and pick up the bits of grain the harvesters had accidentally left behind in their haste to finish harvesting the field. And that's what Ruth was doing when Boaz, the owner of the field, first noticed her. He asked his men about her, and they told him who Ruth was and what she had done. Boaz responded to that by telling Ruth that she could continue to glean in his field and not to leave to go to another field to glean. He also told her to plan to stay with the women who worked for him, even though she wasn't working for him. She was to watch and note the field where the men were harvesting, and this is all from last week's story, and then she was to get right behind the women who were picking up the sheaves and tying them into bundles. Boaz then went on to tell Ruth that he had told his men not to harass her in any way, and then added that when she was thirsty, she was to feel free to drink from the jars of water, the large stone jars off to the side. In other words, she didn't even have to find water for herself in the midst of the heat and dryness of the harvest. And as the story for, the la for last week ended, 
Ruth told Boaz that he had put her mind at ease by his willingness to take care of her and Naomi, and she asked him why she had found such favor with him and why he had taken such note of her, a foreigner. Boaz said that he knew who she was and he knew how, how much she had done for Naomi, the wife of his relative Elimelech. He said that he also knew that she was a foreigner, but that she had left her homeland, her people, and her gods, her father and mother, and she had come to live with the people of Israel, a people that she didn't know before. And then Boaz exchanged, and, and Ruth exchanged warm-hearted blessings for one another, and with that background, this is the story from Ruth chapter 2, verses 14 to 23. This is the story from God's Word. Soon it was lunchtime, and, and Boaz once again went out to speak to Ruth. He caught her eye and, and called to her and said, Come on, come on over here and join us for lunch, he said. And, and then he added, Have some bread and, and dip it in the wine, uh, the vinegar and wine vinegar and oil. So Ruth sat down with the harvesters, and Boaz offered her some, offered her some barley that had been roasted on an iron plate over the fire. Ruth ate all that she wanted and had some left over, and then she got up where she, from where she was sitting and went back to gleaning, picking up the barley stalks that the harvesters had accidentally left behind. When she was busy at work, Boaz huddled up with the men who were working for him there in the field, and he gave them orders not to limit Ruth to simply picking up the leftover stalks. Let her gather among the sheaves, he said. And don't reprimand her if she does. In fact, Boaz went on, I even want you to pull out some stalks from the bundles themselves and intentionally leave them there on the ground. Drop them on there on the ground for her to pick up. And when she does pick them up, don't rebuke her or scold her, but make sure that she knows that I am allowing her to do that. Now remember, Ruth had been there since early morning. She'd paused for a, a quick break in the shelter mid-morning or so and again to eat lunch with the harvesters. And she spent the rest of the afternoon then gleaning. And then she spent the evening threshing all of the stalks of grain she had gleaned. When she was done threshing, she gathered up the entire amount of the threshed grain, which amounted to more or less an ephah. You remember that? It amounted more or less to 30 pounds of grain. And then she swung that bag of threshed barley up onto her head and walked all the way back into town to the house where she was staying with Naomi. And that's when Naomi saw how much Ruth had gathered during that long day's work. Ruth then brought out the leftover roasted grain that she had enjoyed and eaten as much as she could have, and she shared that with Naomi. And by now, Naomi's curiosity had gotten the best of her. So, Ruth asked, so she asked Ruth, where did you glean today? Where did you work? And then before Ruth could answer, Naomi said what was really on her mind. May God bless the man. May God bless the landowner who took notice of you today. And that's when Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Naomi recognized the name immediately and was overwhelmed. May the Lord bless that man, she said again. And then Naomi said something that must have seemed strange to Ruth. That man, Boaz, has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She was talking about herself, the living, and her late husband, Elimelech. 
And then she added something that must have been even more curious to Ruth. That man is our close relative, Naomi said. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Without waiting for an explanation for the curious thing Naomi had just said, Ruth spoke up and said, well, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all of my grain. Naomi picked up the implication of Boaz's words right away. It'll be good for you to stay with the women who work for him, she said to Ruth, and to continue to work in his fields because you might be harmed if you go somewhere else. And so that's what Ruth did. She stayed close to the women who were working for Boaz and as she continued to glean in the fields that Boaz owned until the barley harvest was finished. And when the barley harvest was finished, the wheat harvest began and Ruth continued to glean in the fields of Boaz until the wheat harvest was finished as well. And that is the story from God's Word. As we process this next part of the story of Ruth, I want, to, I want you to look with me at something that comes from the Levitical law. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. It's important to note that what this passage says, it says that the owner of the field was to make sure that the harvesters did not reap all the way to the edge of the field. The harvesters were supposed to leave a halo of sorts around the field. They were supposed to leave the barley standing there around the edge, and the gleaners were allowed then to harvest that part of the planted field. It says that when it comes to a grain harvest, they were to harvest the field in one go, and they were to not, not to gather the gleanings of the harvest, the grain that was missed or left over from that first pass. And the whole idea of this was because the landowners and the harvesters needed to remember that the Lord God commanded this because he wanted the poor and the foreigners to be able to feed themselves despite the fact that they had no land of their own. But for the sake of appreciating this passage this morning, I also want you to notice what this passage does not say. It does not say that the landowner was supposed to feed the poor and foreigners, and it does not say that the landowner was supposed to share his lunch with the poor and foreigners. It does not say that the poor and foreigners who were gleaning were supposed to have doggy bags of food to take home with them after lunch. It does not say that the poor and the foreigners were allowed to gather their grain from the area around the area where the sheaves were kept. It does not say that if the poor and the foreigners were to decide to gather there from that area from around the sheaves, they were under no circumstances to be rebuked. And it certainly does not say that the landowner is supposed to have his workers pull out some stalks from the bundles and intentionally drop them on the ground for the poor and foreigner to pick them up, pick up for themselves. It doesn't say that Boaz was required to do any of that for Ruth. But look with me at verses 14 to 16 to see what Boaz did for Ruth and what Boaz said to his workers about how he wanted them to treat Ruth. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. 
even pull out some stocks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Boaz is sensing his connection to Ruth and goes well beyond what the law required as he seeks to take care of her. And I am reminded of the many, many times God has reached out and done things for me, things that I didn't deserve. Well, the same thing was true of Ruth. She was a poor foreigner, and she knew it. And she knew that her status meant that she was broken, broken to the point of not deserving the kind of help that Boaz had offered her. And what I personally find intriguing is that Boaz has been incredibly gracious to Ruth, but Ruth doesn't cash in on Boaz's graciousness. And what I mean by that is that she accepted his graciousness without abusing his graciousness. She accepted his graciousness without taking advantage of Boaz. And perhaps I need to explain what I mean by saying that. So just for the sake of review, look at what Ruth said to Boaz last week in verse 13. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. I want us to notice those words, you have put me at ease. And I want us to think about what Ruth might have meant when she said that. What do you suppose she meant? You've put me at ease. She might have meant that she appreciated what Boaz was doing for her and would do do for her. And because of all the grace that Boaz was showing her, she might have meant that she would now take her ease and immerse herself in his grace like someone submersing themselves in a hot tub on vacation. I mean, that lady looked at ease, didn't she? I mean, wouldn't you describe that as at ease? I'd like to be doing that, right? No, I'm glad to be here this morning. I'm saying that because I'm afraid that that's what a lot of us do with grace. We submerse ourselves in God's grace and take our ease simply soaking in God's grace. But I'd like to suggest something to us this morning. God's grace is not a hot tub where God intends to put us at ease. And what I mean by that is my brokenness is what allows God to show me his amazing grace. But I can tell you this morning that somehow I want to come to the place where I have more to offer to God than just my brokenness. Surely God in his grace longs for me to do more than simply lie around and give him an opportunity to grace me in response to my brokenness. Surely God has a plan for me to respond to his grace by doubling down on my devotion to him and my service for him. And I think we can get underneath those ideas if we can discover what Ruth meant when she said that Boaz had put her at ease. And we can discover that by watching what she does when she's done doing lunch with Boaz. Look what it says in verses 17 and 18. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she'd gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Ruth worked all morning with only a short break in the shelter, and then she paused for lunch, and then she got back to her back-breaking gleaning and spent the rest of the daylight hours doing that. You tracking here? Then she threshed all the the grain that she had gleaned before she would take it home And having lived in countries where they thresh and winnow grain, I can tell you that the threshing and the winnowing is even harder work than the gleaning. So Ruth gleaned all day, 
And then that evening she threshed and winnowed the barley she had gleaned. And at the end of that grueling day, she had an ephah, <coughs> excuse me, of barley to take home. And we're not talking about an ephah. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about 30 pounds of barley that she would have hoisted under her head as she walked home with that weight. Having found herself at ease, she didn't kick back at all. Instead, she began to work even harder. And once again, I think there's a message in this for those of us who may take great pleasure in the fact that God amplifies his grace in our lives when we amplify our brokenness. And I don't want to take that away from you. I'd just like to suggest this morning that there may be something more. I don't want to in any way undermine the truth that God increases his grace in our lives at times when our brokenness increases. And I don't want to undermine the truth that it's okay to be broken, but maybe we can begin to think along the, li along the lines that it's okay to be broken, but it's not okay to stay broken. And that would be especially true at those times when God has something for us to do. And in that light, I brought along a little bit of a physical illustration this morning. Um, that I hope you're going to understand and appreciate. Uh, some, of you, some of you will recognize this immediately. Others of you that may not have a clear idea what is it. Do you, anybody have any idea what that is? Yeah, it's a headlight for a 2009 Dodge Journey. But can, when you look at it does, it, does anything about it strike you? It's all cloudy and nasty and the little tiny light bulbs that went inside of this thing. You see, I often leave for the airport, and I leave for the airport a lot, but I often leave at the airport at like 1 o'clock in the morning. And when I drive the Dodge Journey with the light that this puts out, the light shines about this far right here. <laughs> and, and now when a car is coming at me or if there's a deer in the road, I, I don't have to worry about hitting a deer because I won't see it in, in, you know, in the long run. But... but and, and it occurs to me that, that I could have just been very gracious with my headlights. I, I, they're kind of broken, and, and they didn't work very well, and they weren't serving me well at all. But I could have been gracious and just let them stay right there in the vehicle. But uh, instead of doing that, and I hope this is coming up next, instead of doing that, I actually, oh, she's sitting in the hot tub again. Instead of doing that, I actually had them replaced. And I can tell you, listen, I got some joy out of being gracious with these bold, beat-up headlights that have served me for so long. But, oh my goodness, do I get joy from driving in the dark. And actually having other, other drivers flash their, their high beams at me thinking that I had a... I mean, I... I get some special joy out of that, and that's all that I'm trying to say. I know that God gets joy out of showing me grace in my brokenness. But don't I want more than that? Don't I want him to have the special joy of me working with him in what he's set out to do? The headlights weren't broken per se, but they were certainly underperforming when it came to doing what I wanted them to do. And it occurs to me, as I said, I could have just left the headlights the way that they were and showed grace to them. I made my, but I made my way for my car to produce more light by installing lenses and new bulbs. And, and I can tell you this morning, 
It's a lot more fun to drive now at night than it was before. And I can also tell you this morning that I love it, like I said, when God's gracious to me and my brokenness. But I'm in the habit now of reminding myself that he is my maker, he is my owner, and he is my redeemer. And that makes me want to rise above my constant brokenness and live my life in a way that will make it possible for him to say to me, well done, you have been a good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Lord. And because he has given me the great joy of a heart that's at ease, I want to give him the joy that comes from my wholehearted hard work when he asks me to do something that's important to him. I don't want my light to be dim. I want my light to shine brightly for his glory. And in that line, I'm convinced this morning that Ruth and Naomi both understood this very simple principle that we're talking about right now. I mean, Ruth has just spent a grueling day in the hot sun gleaning and, and then followed that by threshing and winnowing the barley she'd gathered. She carried the 30 pounds of barley home to Naomi, and Ruth also shared with Naomi the leftover roasted barley that she'd been given at lunchtime. And Ruth, and after Ruth had done all of that grueling, exhausting work, Naomi has only one question for her. Well, two, but really they amount to the same thing. Look at the first part of verse 19. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And as she responds, Ruth seems to have forgotten how hard she worked that day. And her only thoughts are about the one about whom Naomi just asked. Look what Ruth says to her mother-in-law. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Ruth is not obsessing over how hard she'd worked that day. Instead, she's fixated on and captivated with the one with whom she had worked. And I want us to notice what it says there. It doesn't say that Ruth worked for Naomi. It says that she worked with, with, with Boaz. It says that he worked, she worked with Boaz that day. She worked with Boaz. And that's something that we can experience every day as we work with the one who loved us and redeemed us from our sin with his own blood. And I'm not using that word redeemed lightly. Look at Naomi's response in verse, in verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Now, I want to remind you that three weeks ago, we looked at a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 25 that explained what's supposed to happen when, someone, when a man gets married and dies without having a son that could be his heir. The, the law said that the, the man's brother was to step up and marry his brother's widow, and the first son that he bore, that she bore after that relationship, would carry the name of the dead or of her, or her dead husband, or the dead brother, so that the dead brother's name would not disappear, and the dead brother's land and inheritance in Israel would not be lost. Understand, that's what about, that is what is about to happen to Elimelech. Elimelech's name is going to go away, and the inheritance will go away with it. You may also remember that Elimelech and Naomi had two sons who both got married in Moab, and then both of those sons died without having sons of their own, and that meant 
that Elimelech's name was going to go away unless. But the law made provision for that as well. If there was no brother to marry the widow, then after the near relative could fulfill that responsibility. And that close relative was known as a guardian redeemer. My, the, the, turning my clock back in time has, has sped it up considerably. I'm, I, I need about eight minutes, I hope. But we made a deal, right? We'll finish, and then you'll, we'll go home. <laughs> that was tricky of me. It was the guardian redeemer alone who could redeem this situation. It was the guardian redeemer alone who could give life back to this situation. And as we've already said, Ruth happened to wander into the field of one of the guardian redeemers, of the two guardian redeemers for the family of Elimelech. And, and Boaz happened to show up that day. He happened to take notice of her. He happened to tell his men to leave her alone. And then he happened to tell his men to take special care of her. And by now, Ruth is so captivated with Boaz that she can speak only of him and his care for her. Look at verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. I, I don't, I'm not making fun of women, but you can hear it in her voice, can't you? <laughs> he, he even said, he even said, I, I think there might be something going on there, I think she's thinking. And I know all this talk about grain and harvest doesn't sound terribly romantic, but to be sure, Ruth is Twitterpated at this point. Watch Bambi if you don't know what I'm talking about. Now that Naomi knows that Ruth has been talking about meeting and getting to know Boaz, she has some advice for her daughter-in-law. Look at verse 22. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it'll be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because, he's in some, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. And Ruth, while well, she knows a good thing when she sees it, she's just gotten her mother-in-law's advice to stay with the man who has shown her so much grace, but... I think it's safe to say that Ruth was already planning to do that before her mother-in-law suggested it. Uh, look at verse 23. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Do you remember last week that, that we talked about, about Naomi and Ruth being in the right place at the right time as they're in Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest? Well, God has, be, has honored their being in the right place and the, at the right time, and that moment of grace now has opened the door to a season of grace and goodness. And having experienced all that grace and goodness at the hands of Boaz, Ruth is so entirely taken with him that she stays with him, not only for the barley harvest, but for the wheat harvest as well. But now we've come to the moment when the barley harvest is over and the wheat harvest is over. And so I guess that the relationship between Ruth and Boaz is also over. But having said that, you've probably figured out that you're just going to have to come back next week to watch the next installment of this real life better than a Hallmark movie that's unfolding right in front of our eyes. And having said that, there is one more th point that I want to make, and, and then I really will truly be done. There's a parallel passage to the book of Ruth that may not strike you as parallel immediately, but David wrote this, Psalm chapter 40 and verse 3. And I want you to do something for me before you read that. I want to read it to you, and I want you to check my accuracy. Can you do that? Just check my accuracy and make sure that I get it right. All right, I'll, I'll read it from here. I waited patiently from the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set me in a hot tub where I can hum quietly to myself. 
It's not what it says, does it? Thank you. Hey, do you remember what Ruth said to Boaz at the end of the passage for last week? She said to him, you've put me at ease. You have put me at ease. And do you remember that this week, despite the fact that she's so at ease, she doubles down and works harder than she ever has. She's there working with Boaz, and because she's working with Boaz, she wants to work as hard as you can, as she can. And do you remember that instead of talking about herself and how hard she had worked when she got back to Naomi, all she can talk about is Boaz? And do you remember how passionate Ruth was as she shared with Naomi who it was who had so captivated her that day? Do you remember? Well, I can tell you that Psalm 40 is talking about the very same thing uh, as as Ruth chapter 2 is talking about, only Boaz's name doesn't come up in Psalm chapter 40. David talks about the fact that he too was stuck in a slimy pit, just like the one where Ruth and Naomi had been stuck. So David cried out to the Lord. You saw that there. And, and, and David cried out to the Lord, and the Lord lifted him out of, a, out of the slimy pit, but he didn't put him in a hot tub, right, where he could soak. Those of us who have cried out to him by faith know that experience. We know the ease that comes with being forgiven. But what does Psalm 40 really say? This time, really follow along. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. I, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God, many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Ruth came back from working with Boaz, just absolutely taken with the man. She can only speak of him. She, she doubled down. She worked harder. And that's what this passage is talking about this morning. That's what Psalm 40 is about. David is saying that God did the same thing for me. I was in the pit I was, the slimy, sticky mud was all over me. I couldn't get out until he pulled me out. And when he pulled me out, he didn't slide me at my ease into a hot tub where I could bask. He set my feet on a rock. And he put a new song in my mouth. A hymn of praise to our God. Many will hear it and come to faith and put their trust in him. You hear what I'm saying? I'm saying that, that we should all want more. It's wonderful that he, he, he blesses us with his grace. It's wonderful that he leans into our lives and in the midst of our brokenness puts, it at, puts us at ease. And I, I, I do believe it's absolutely important. Listen, it's absolutely vital that you spend part of each day soaking in the hot tub of God's grace and humming quietly to yourself. Please do that every day day. But the moment comes when you're not going to want to turn into a spiritual prune. So you got to get out of the hot tub. You got to dry yourself off. You got to go find some rock, the rock that he's given you to stand on. And you've got to sing at the top of your lungs about the one who loved you and purchased you from your sins, redeemed you from your sins with his own blood because there are people out there who need to hear, so that they too can trust him and be put at ease as their sins are forgiven through your ministry in their life 
of the good news that Jesus has died for them, was buried, and rose again. Will you stand with me in the presence? Our Father and our God, thank you so much for your word this morning and our our feeble efforts to try to understand. God, speak to our hearts. I don't want anybody going away thinking that I don't think it's important to to soak in in your your, your great grace and goodness. God, teach us to to set aside time early in the morning or at some part of the day when we can just slide into the hot tub of your grace and, and hum quietly to ourselves as we give thanks to you for what you've done for us, but help us to remember, God, that it isn't just about us. You, what you've done for us, you want to do for others. And the only way that happens is if we find a rock to stand on so that we can sing at the top of our lungs. So God, help us find that balance in our lives, where we're wonderfully grateful for your grace in our lives and wonderfully enthusiastic about the potential for your grace in the lives of others. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace and your grace here in our community and around the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're headed out there. Go find somebody you can sing to. I don't care how bad your voice is. And so all that's left is for me to say, ready? Ready. Oh, yeah, okay.